Hello and welcome to episode 145 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in Los Angeles. I'm Nathan Fox, and today's episode is going to be a bit different because I am flying solo today as Ben Olson is taking a much-needed vacation at the beach somewhere uh, in the Mediterranean. No, just kidding. He's, he's on the Atlantic somewhere. And uh, Ben is recharging his batteries. So today you're stuck with just me. Um, today on the show, basically I am going to read a whole bunch of emails. And that's great because we have a huge agenda that we have to get through. And um, all y'all have been waiting patiently to hear your emails and questions on the show. Unfortunately, you're only going to get my perspective, and uh, I'll just do the best I can. Ben can correct everything I say that's wrong when he returns to the show next time. We currently have 554 members in the Thinking LSAT podcast group on Facebook, and I just want to give a shout-out to Annalisa Palmer for... uh, setting up that group, which now has properly blown up and I'm sure it will continue to blow up. Um, so yeah, go to facebook.com slash thinking LSAT and join our group. We have 19 patrons on Patreon who are donating, uh, now $107 every month. We really appreciate that. We pay about a thousand dollars a month to run the show and you know, you don't need to feel sorry for us because we are professional LSAT teachers and we get brutally overpaid for what we do, but, um, we do appreciate people chipping in to help us to, uh, run the show. Um, (laughs) we got a kind of a funny email this week from a listener who was super irritated that we keep saying patrons at the top of the show. And, uh, I, yes, that is a bit of an inside joke. I don't remember where that came from, but we, we understand the proper pronunciation of of patrons. But, uh, if you support us on Patreon, you are going to forever be called a patron and we really appreciate our patrons. You can email the show anytime. The address to email the show is help at thinkinglsat.com. You can visit strategyprep.com if you want to learn about Ben's vastly superior offerings. You can also visit foxlsat.com if you want to learn about my inferior offerings. We have uh, live classes. uh, Ben teaches live classes in D.C. I teach live classes in Los Angeles and San Francisco because I'm an idiot. And we uh, each have all sorts of online and one-on-one options. Uh, We furthermore have this new uh, personal statement review package. It is $995. I help you with the content. Ben helps you with the copy. And you can go to thinkinglset.com if that is intriguing to you at all. Hey, reminder, we have a weekend class coming up in New York City. That's July 14 to 15. I'm super excited about this class. Uh, It's going to be the first time that Ben and I have ever taught together. We are going to meet up somewhere in New York on July 13th and have a hosted uh, cocktails and snacks kind of thing for anybody who happens to be showing up in town on July 13th. And then on July 14, 15, we are going to do our first ever joint class and it's going to be awesome. I say that because I know that Ben is awesome and I can't wait to see him in the classroom. Uh, I'll chime in from time to time, but, um, that's July 14th and 15th thinking LSAT weekend course 
in New York City and registration is now open for that. I know we have um, over 10 people now who are signed up for that class and I'm sure that class will be full. So please go to thinkinglset.com and sign up right now for the class that we're going to do in New York City. And uh, it's going to just be fun, y'all. It's going it's, <laughs> it's to be great. We've already been shipping out materials. Um, there's some pre-homework you can do if you sign up early. It's not, you know, it's optional. But if you do want to get cracking, you can sign up for that course and you can get some materials and you can get working and then come hang out with us for a couple of days in New York in July, which is going to be awesome. All right. I'm going to dive into this agenda here. And the first thing that I see is registration numbers for the June uh, 11th LSAT and the July 23rd LSAT. This is a, like a tweet or something. This was a message from the LSAC overlords. And it says, it's kind of, I laughed. It says to ensure realistic comparisons for the June 2018 administration, we will be combining the June and July administrations and making the comparison to the June 2017 administration. So, I mean, here's long story short of it was there were fewer people taking it in June 2018 than in uh, June 2017. 30,600 took it in June 2017 and only 25,300 took it in June 2018. So there's, you know, 5,000 people fewer uh, taking the test. Then they add the 16,000 who are taking it in July, which of course makes sense. Um, you end up with 41,000 people who took it in June and July, and then they compare that to the June 2017 test. I can just imagine some MBA at the LSAC who's, you know, um, adding this all up and calculating it and, and wanting to display it, uh, for the folks, uh, their, their bosses, you know, at LSAC. Anyways, it's a 36% increase. It's an increase over, um, over last year. I'm, I was, when I saw this, I was surprised. I thought that they would have uh, more demand for that July test. The only 16,000 people taking it in July just doesn't strike me as very sensible. I think more people really need to be taking the test multiple times. We've talked about this on the show a million times. Law schools only care about your highest score. They would be stupid if they cared about anything other than just your highest score. And so uh, I don't understand why there aren't more people taking it in July. Anyway, there's going to be 16,000 people taking it in July, and then we will see about September. So that's an update from LSAC. Okay, here's an email from a listener. It says, hi, Nathan and Ben. I just listened to episode 144 and thought I'd throw in my two cents about timed practice. Your advice from previous shows about slowing down for accuracy helped me suppress my impulse to budget time. Now I focus on comprehension and doing what I can do. Thank you for that. But I admit I have been adapting your instructions about timed sections. It would bother me to completely stop at 35 minutes and only work my way up to more questions attempted per section over weeks slash months of practice. I want consistent exposure to the hardest questions so that when I can finally attempt them within the given time, they're as familiar as the easy questions. I also have more than one hour a day to study and want to build up endurance and focus 
So my practice is to set a timer for 35 minutes and work through the questions, prioritizing accuracy until the timer goes off, at which point I draw a line under the last question I reach. I then do the remaining questions for the reasons mentioned above. When I score myself and review answers, I calculate both a timed and an untimed score at the end of four sections. Noting the lines, I only give myself points for correct answers above the line for the timed score and give myself points for all correct answers in the section for the untimed score. In the past two months, I have watched my timed score go from an original 157 to a high of 167, and my untimed score go from an original 163 to a high of 179. These rough score estimates motivate me to keep going and to trust in the process. Since you didn't mention this approach, I thought it might be worth writing in about. Practicing sections in this way and splitting up the score calculations could be a good solution to balancing the reality of limited time with the confidence boost of unlimited time. I do think that when it comes to taking a full practice test, simulating the timing is crucial. I don't think it's worth taking a full untimed practice test every 10 tests or so as proposed uh, on the last episode, but one untimed practice test at the very beginning of LSAT prep is humbling and therefore worthwhile. Y'all rock yours L. Um, I want to give a shout out to my LA student, Katie, who prompted this whole discussion. And I, you know, my perspective, I think on this issue has changed a bit. I do think it's okay to do untimed practice sometimes. I I definitely think it's okay to finish the sections untimed. This suggestion from L I think is very good. Um I I do I want to make one I'm concerned about one thing, you know, because I work with students at all different levels and when I I get I get emails from students who are scoring in the 140s and they send me this like extremely difficult question number 26. And they want me to explain it to them, but when I read their rationale for what they think you know, the right answer might be and how they're thinking about the question, it's clear that they're just like 100% whiffing on this question, that this question is way beyond their actual abilities. So for L, who started at a 157 uh, timed, you know, L is the type of student who can, I think, productively work through all of the remaining questions, even the ones that she doesn't get to in the 35 minutes. She can, she can still productively do those questions without pulling her hair out. For a student who's more like, you know, in the one, mid-140s or something, if you're looking at a 145, if you're looking at a 145, you are missing some of the easiest questions on the entire test. And as much as I respect that you want to eventually do the hardest ones. I don't think that's your best bet today because you're missing so many of the easiest ones. So I think it depends on your level. If you're close to 160, then yeah, I think you can probably work your way untimed through even the hardest questions on the test. But boy, if you haven't yet really been consistently cracking 150 or 155, uh, you're having fundamental difficulties understanding some of the easiest stuff. 
That's not to say that you won't eventually get there, but you have lower hanging fruit. And so when, when you're then on an untimed basis doing question number 25, even though you only scored 145 on time, uh, makes me, I, I just, it's sad because you're going to be working on questions where you are almost randomly guessing on the correct answer. You're, you're just not understanding the basics. You're not understanding the fundamentals. And so I would prefer at that point that you just um, worry about the mistakes that you made during the 35 minute section. It's a very efficient way to study, to just go 35 minutes timed and then look at your mistakes you, I think that is the way that you squeeze maximum value out of limited time. And it, it also sort of self levels. It keep, keeps you at your level and then you're doing challenges that are sort of appropriate for your level. Um, L, you know, st- so starting at a 157, I mean, that's much higher than most people start. So starting at a 157, okay, L, you're a very talented student and sure it, since you're already like kind of a star um, working through all of those really hard questions on an untimed basis, I think is, is totally fine. So I can endorse that for higher level students. All right, moving on. Another email from Thomas that says ADA compliance and what it means. Hey, Nathan and Ben, I was recently forwarded an article about Golden Gate University Law School in the ABA journal. It was not a glowing review. Apparently, they are, quote, significantly out of compliance, end quote, with ABA standards. Apparently, GGU allows in, sorry, allows too many people to attend who are not capable of passing the bar and the first year attrition rate is too high. I am attending GGU in the fall. I committed before I had any idea they were in trouble. However, I am not too freaked out as I am not paying and living at home. Should I be freaking out? If y'all have any advice, it would be much appreciated. Link included below and feel free to use my first name on the podcast if the email makes it to the podcast. VR, comma, Thomas. Uh, thanks, Thomas, for writing in. We always get these VR um, salutation. Wait, that's not a salutation. Closing salutation? I don't know what it's called. Ben would know. Ben's not here. Um, VR. I, I want to know what that means. So somebody's going to have to write in and tell me what VR means. Uh, okay. So here's my thoughts on this. I started my business in San Francisco. You know, I've been teaching LSAT classes in San Francisco for over a decade now. And, uh, one of the first things I learned about law schools in San Francisco, this was in 2007. Uh, one of the first things I learned about law schools in San Francisco was that golden gate was like in trouble with the ADA and might learn, might lose their accreditation. So I've been hearing these rumors for over a decade now that golden gate is going to lose their accreditation. Will they or won't they lose their accreditation? I don't know. I have no idea, and I am not going to speculate. We talked about on the last show, Arizona Summit just lost their accreditation, so the ABA actually did uh, pull the rug out from under one law school. 
But does that mean that they're actually going to pull the trigger on Arizona on uh, Golden Gate? Who knows? And I've been hearing forever that they have problems with ABA standards. Um, as far as these specific complaints, they're allowing too many people to attend who are not capable of passing the bar. Well, obviously they are, but so is USF and so is Hastings and so are many, many, many law schools in California. I mean, there's just way too many people going to law school in California who are not going to pass the California bar. That's the, that's sorry. That's real life. Um, are they going to then take away golden gates accreditation? I don't know. Should golden gate tighten the belt and reduce their class size and have higher admission standards? Absolutely. Uh, what does that mean for Thomas? I don't know. Um, he's not paying. He's living at home and he's not paying. How wrong can Thomas really go when he's living at home and he's not paying? This other complaint is the first year attrition rate is too high. So that means there's too many people dropping out after one year. Let me tell you, dropping out after one year of law school is a good thing, not a bad thing. I wish I would have dropped out of law school after one year. I do not want to be a lawyer. I was miserable. I hated law school. I would not be good at that job. doesn't matter how smart I am. I would be a terrible lawyer because I had no interest. It was boring. I hated it. And dropping out of law school is awesome. Um, it means that you have decided that there is something else in the world that you would like to spend your limited days on earth on. And that is great. Quitting things is awesome. Please quit things that you suck at. Quit things you hate. So I don't know why the ABA doesn't like the attrition rate at Golden Gate. I, I feel like high attrition rate is, is actually good for students. I mean, if you don't go your second year, then you don't pay any money for that second year. So I don't know why attrition rate, maybe somebody from the bar um, could explain this to me, but I, I don't know why attrition rate, high attrition rate is a bad thing. That, that really, honestly, it seems like a good thing. Like when I was at Hastings, you could go to Hastings and not do shit and still get passing grades because they wanted your 2L and 3L tuitions, even if it was very clear at that point that you weren't going to be a practicing lawyer. You weren't going to be successful in law, but they, they didn't want to fail you because they wanted your money. So if, if there's this high attrition rate because people are failing, I mean, isn't that a good thing? I don't get it. Their admission standards are definitely way too low. There's, there's far too many people going to Golden Gate who just aren't going to pass the California bar. And that's, that's a just fact. Um, evidence just shows. <laughs> the, their bar passage rate is abysmal. And it's because their admission standards are too low. But should Thomas be freaking out? I don't think so. I mean, he's not paying, he's living at home and he's not paying tuition. It, you know, he has a scholarship for a reason. He has a scholarship because he's more talented than the other people at the school. I mean, unless this is one of those veterans, um, programs in any, in any case, he's not paying. So what's the risk? Um, if golden gate, blinks out of existence because the ABA takes away their accreditation. I feel like Thomas can just slide into another school and it's not really that big of a deal. And if, if golden gate gets their accreditation taken away three years after Thomas has graduated, 
that doesn't matter either because your alma mater is just not going to matter after you have started an actual legal career. I mean, it, it matters for your first job. It matters for like your summer jobs while you're in law school. And then those lead to real jobs moving forward. And that has no effect once you've actually, once you've already graduated and started working, who, who gives a shit? So, uh, Thomas, I give you my full endorsement to, um, not pay for law school and go to Golden Gate for free. And I, in fact, I know many successful, um, lawyers who went to Golden Gate and now practice law and they didn't pay a dime to go there. And it's awesome. The people I worry about are the people who pay to golden to pay to go to Golden Gate. I mean, if you have to pay to go to Golden Gate, you are kind of a long shot to pass the bar and get a job and be a successful lawyer. Not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying you're a long shot. Uh, that's why you have to pay to go to a school like Golden Gate. Next email. Um, message. Hi, Nathan. I recently started listening to your podcast and I'm not sure if this is the best way to contact you or not, as I didn't see an email on the website for the podcast. Oh, Hey Matt, if you're listening, can you put help at thinking near the top of the thinking website, please? Uh, I'm taking the June test and probably the September one, depending on how I do in June. Great. My practice exams have been going dot, 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 not so well. I like that ellipsis there, Kayla. Uh, I do that too. Sometimes I overuse that little ellipsis, but uh, I like how you did that one. That was pretty good. My practice exams have been going not so well. Pretty atrocious, actually, and not just by the standards of a perfectionist. There seem to be a lot of those that write in. I get anywhere from a 148 to 150. My worst section is logic games, hands down. I wonder if other listeners are in the same place. I love the podcast, but hearing from people with diagnostic scores of 160 can sometimes be discouraging. It helps that a few of my friends are also having similar scores. If you have any words of encouragement, constructive criticism, or tough love to someone feeling very discouraged, I would be so thankful. My second point is about the act of circling a question that gave you trouble and coming back to it later. Is this something you recommend? If so, what exactly do you recommend I do with my time when reviewing tough questions? My strategy as of now is to reread the question and be absolutely sure that the answer I chose is my best guess. Ugh, I hate that phrase. Ain't no guessing. You either figured it out or you didn't. Um, is this productive? I know your philosophy is to focus on getting everything right the first time around, but when I have two or three minutes left, oh my God, I'm wondering how I should spend that time. Your time and energy is so appreciated. Sending love from Kansas, exclamation point, Kayla. Hey, Kayla, thank you for writing in. Um, it seems as if you have not really, though, taken our advice to heart. You got to slow way down. Um, if you're scoring 148 to 150, you have no business finishing the sections. So my uh, to take your second question first, no, I do not 
like circling a question that gives you trouble and coming back to it later. I feel like when you circle a question that gave you trouble and plan to come back to it later, all you're going to do is move on deeper in the section than you really deserve to be moving on to. And you're going to be working on some of the hardest questions on the entire section. And you're going to be basically leaving easier questions. I mean, I know that you experienced it as difficult, but just because you had a bit of a hard time with it on your first read doesn't mean that it was actually difficult. And if you keep going forward uh, too deep into the sections, it's guaranteed that you're going to be doing harder questions, not easier questions. So I hate circling. I don't, Ben might have a different perspective, but for me, I would much prefer that you just sit there and figure it out and you're going to get as close as you can get to the correct answer. You're going to pick an answer and then you're going to move forward. I just don't want you finishing. Listen, you're scoring 148 to 150. You do not need to finish the sections. You are missing easy questions. You're not understanding what you're doing. You need to figure that shit out. You need to slow down and you need to just figure them out. Um, this whole thing of, it's kind of funny how you put it. I mean, I, I'm being nitpicky, but my strategy as of now is to reread the question and be absolutely sure that the answer I chose is my best guess. Well, that's like you're not actually solving the question. People, I was just yelling yesterday at my online office hours. I was yelling at some students about they were they were wanting to say like hey well if the correct answer wasn't there then wouldn't this other answer be be you know it's it's just this other answer is okay right it's just that the other answer is better and i look at their proposed second best answer and their proposed second best answer was not second best their proposed second answer sucked and they they weren't critical enough of it they didn't read it closely enough they didn't figure out that it's just wrong I, I got to tell you, there's, it's very, very rare that there is a second best answer on the LSAT. I'm, I'm speaking specifically about the logical reasoning. I mean, on the logic games, there's never a second best answer. There's just the answer and four wrong answers. On the logical reasoning and reading comprehension, there's not really a second best. There's, there's the answer. There's a reason why the right answer is right, and there are reasons why the four wrong answers are wrong. And if you're guessing, if you're like, well, this is my best guess, you know, it could be that one, but it could be this one. That basically means you just didn't finish the job. And I, I would prefer that you finish the work, pick an answer and move on and let it go and give your full attention to the next question instead of this half-assing it and circling it. Oh, well, I don't really know. I'll come back to it. And now you're just like skimming the surface instead of actually doing the work. Going back to the first question, um, I'm scoring 148 to 150. I'm discouraged hearing from people with diagnostic scores of 160. If you have any words of encouragement, constructive criticism, or tough love, I would be so thankful. Um, Sure. Let me say this. Um, 150, you know, that's about average. That's, that's, uh, average, uh, average score. And, you know, I just recently watched, uh, won't you be my neighbor, which is this, uh, Mr. Rogers documentary. 
It's really, really good. I mean, y'all should just go. You should just drop whatever you're doing right now and go see Won't You Be My Neighbor. It's a beautiful movie. What a beautiful man he was. Um, One thing that he said that struck me was just, you know, his whole thing was like, I, I like you just the way you are. And you don't have to be special to be special. Okay. You don't have to have an elite LSAT score to make a significant contribution to the world. Um, Kayla, you can get from 148 or 150, you can get up to 160. And if you can get to 160, you can go to law school for free and maybe you can make an impact in the world as a lawyer with your 160 LSAT score and your free legal education. Um, it sounds like you're judging yourself a little bit for your low score. It sounds like you're getting discouraged a little bit because you're not scoring as high as everyone else. The second you start comparing yourself to other people, you are going to um, experience depression and anxiety and you're just going to judge yourself. So, you know, be thankful for what you have. Um, think about the people who have helped you a lot in the world and try to remember that there are people on your team and be grateful for the help you've received and be grateful for the skills you have. And, um, if lawyering is really right for you currently scoring 148 and 150, maybe that's not where you want to end up, but you're, you're within striking distance of a score that's going to let you go to law school. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. It, it could take you six months. It could take you 12 months. But if you're really a lawyer, six months or 12 months of hard work is nothing. And if you're not really a lawyer, then you'll give up before you get there. And that's totally fine, too. Uh, you just got to do you. I don't know. I'm not a pep talk guy. But go see Won't You Be My Neighbor. It's really a wonderful movie. Okay. Uh, oh, I also saw Incredibles 2, which uh, Incredibles was is basically my favorite movie until Incredibles 2. I had ultra high expectations for Incredibles 2 and Incredibles 2 exceeded my ultra high expectations. That is a goddamn delightful movie and uh, everybody should see Incredibles 2. Yesterday, I went and saw Hereditary, and I really, really don't recommend that anybody go see Hereditary. Just don't do it. I was yelling at my friends about it. I was like, dude, you guys are you're bad people for encouraging me to come see this movie. I wanted to see the movie. It's, I'm a bad person, too, because I was encouraging them to go see it. Anyway, Hereditary is scary as shit. Don't ever see it. Do go see Incredibles 2 do go see uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor. You will cry with joy at both of those films. All right. Next email says, Hey guys, new listener here. I love the show and I'm working through both of your free courses at the moment. It's been a great help. So thank you. Um, So yeah, we have free classes. Uh, It's uh, strategyprep.com slash free is Ben's um, far more comprehensive free offering. FoxLSAT.com slash free is my mediocre offering. Uh, but, you know, you should do both of them. Uh, they're free. What are you doing? Why are you not doing them? Do them. Okay. Here's my numbers. Undergrad GPA, 2.84. Lots of exploration. Many major changes. 
Okay, your grades suck. Cold diagnostic, 155 on the June 2007 test, hoping to bump to the mid-160s. Hey, 155 is an awesome cold diagnostic. I've seen people make it from 155 to 170 regularly, so I don't know why you're setting a goal for yourself in the mid-160s. You have shitty grades. You might as well make it to 170-something and show them what kind of talent you actually have. Law school has always been a dream of mine, but seemed unrealistic after having my son right out of high school. However, I recently found three hybrid slash online programs that would allow me to finally attend law school. These are Denver University, Sturm College of Law, Syracuse Law, and Mitchell Hamlin. I was wondering if you had any experience with or thoughts on these kinds of programs. Thanks for your insights. Justin. Um, ah, shit. I maybe should have saved this one for Ben. I don't have any experience with those three schools. Um, particularly I do think that hybrid slash online is clearly the wave of the future. My LSAT business has moved. Um, boy, it's just more and more online every day. I like it when people take a live class, but I'm, I always kind of wonder why you're taking a live class when it's so much more efficient to take an online class. Hybrid maybe is the best of both worlds. You get a little bit of actual uh, face-to-face, in-person human interaction, and you also get uh, the far more efficient online um, instruction. Uh you know, the obvious concerns are what kinds of jobs do people get who go to these kinds of schools? So you need to speak with alumni, um, not the alumni that the ideally not the alumni that the admissions office sets you up with, but an alum who you network to by some other means, you know, you somebody that you work with. Um, friends of friends, uh, random cold calling around town and just go have coffee with people. Uh, you gotta, you gotta hustle. You're going to have to hustle to get a job. When you go to a school like this, you're going to have to hustle when you go to any law school to get a job. It's just not the golden ticket that people think it is. You're going to have to hustle. So you might as well start hustling now, do some due diligence and talk to alums of these schools. You know, I've never heard of Denver University Sturm College of Law. I've never heard of Mitchell Hamlin or, you know, I've only tangentially heard of them. Are they accredited by the ABA or are they state accredited? If they're state accredited, you can only take the bar in that state. If they're ABA accredited, uh, that'll allow you to, to take the bar in any state. So these sound like regional programs. There's nothing wrong with a regional program. It's just that you know, you're not going to get a job in Los Angeles after going to Denver University Sturm College of Law. People in L.A. are going to be like, huh, who, what, Sturm College of who? And so you you need to um, you need to figure out like, hey, what are you doing? It, it depends on your career goals. You have a kid, right? It sounds like you're not going to really move. Although you're looking at Denver University and you're looking at Syracuse and you're looking at Mitchell Hamlin, which I don't even know where that is. 
maybe you're geographically flexible or maybe these programs allow you to just show up for like a couple weekends or something like that, in which case you don't mind traveling. That's, that's fine. Just, you gotta, you gotta do a, you gotta do some math. I'm sorry, but you gotta do some math. Like, Hey, here's what kind of a job I'm going to get after I go to this school. And here's how much I'm going to have to pay, hopefully zero to go to this school. And does it pencil or does it not pencil? Um, don't pay for law school. You know, that's, that's my advice. Okay. Next email. Ben and Nathan, hope this message finds you well. I am a longtime listener writing to you for the first time. I took a cold LSAT in 2015 and scored a 155. It was undisclosed, but I'm willing to bet that I did really well in reading comp, got lucky in logical reasoning, and totally bombed the logic games. I did not even know how to solve logic games then. After four months of prep in 2017, I retook the LSAT. I was scoring in the high 150s, low 160s range in my prep and got an official 154. Lower after four months of prep. Yikes. As you can imagine, I was heartbroken. If I remember correctly, I scored minus 13 on games, minus 13 combined on LR, and a minus 7 on the reading comp. RCs are a hit and miss for me. I either get minus 2 or minus 8. Oh, and a side note, I always finish all the questions in time with the exception of logic games. My one key takeaway from the podcast so far slow the fuck down. Uh, yeah, dude. I mean, obviously you, you can't be doing that many questions. You can't be missing 13 combined on LR and finishing the sections. That's garbage. You're not, I got to tell you, you're not doing it. You're not doing the work. You think you're doing it, but you're not doing it. If you were doing it, you would get it right. So get it right. Slow down, figure it out, be sure about your answers, then do the next question you're, you're missing seven, you know, six or seven per section. If you're finishing, you should be missing more like two per section, not six or seven. You're being sloppy. You're just not actually figuring it out. Um, same with reading comp. You can't finish the section and miss seven. You're that's, you're, you're missing a whole passage worth of questions. You, you could score higher by only doing three passages and then randomly guessing on the fourth passage, as long as you got everything right, which on the reading comp, you can get everything right. The answers are right there in the passage. You, you got to do your work. Um, you're not behaving like a lawyer and you still suck at games. Oh my God. I'm minus 13 on games. What is that? that many, many, many people score perfectly on the games. I mean, people suck when they start, but with the right kind of prep, you should, boy, like the minimum acceptable score on games. There's just no reason not to get like 15 points at a minimum. I mean, even if you're like, no, Nathan, I suck at science and math. I'm a total idiot at math. This is mathy. I hate it. I suck at it. I'm never going to be good at it. Okay, fine. But you should still figure out a way to get 15 points. I mean, Joe here is getting 10. I just not going to get it done. You, you got to be able to get in the mid teens at least. Anyway, uh, I purchased Nathan's encyclopedia and I must say it really helped me out. Things are beginning to click. I even bought into reading the stimulus first, a concept I refused to practice from bad habits. Honestly, I think slowing down has really helped me out. 
I have not taken a full test since starting prep. I'm registered for September. I am consistently drilling games and logical reasoning. My past few games have been an average of minus seven, and the same is true for logical reasoning. I think that means per test on logical reasoning, minus seven per test. Here are my questions for you. Um, okay, before we get to these questions, uh, thank you for buying my encyclopedia. That book uh, is available on Amazon. And you know what I would really like is all y'all out there, listeners, if you have read that book and if it has helped you, can you please, please write me a review on Amazon? I mean, actually, any of my books. If you have a moment, it doesn't even have to be that much. Just put five stars and write two sentences about how you use the book or whatever. I don't advertise the books at all. I worked my ass off on those books. I continuously revise those books and I'm sorry for selling so much, but Hey, I'm a little guy and, um, you can help me if you, if, if, if it helped you, please do me a favor and just go to Amazon and write a quick review. Thanks. Okay. Here's the questions from Joe. One, I usually find 16 to 22 to be my worst questions on the logical reasoning. For whatever reason, 22 to 26, I can answer relatively well. What is your skipping and guessing strategy? Ain't no skipping and ain't no guessing. You got to slow down and figure that shit out. I hear this all the time that people think that 16 to 22 is harder than 22 to 26. That's 100% bullshit. I'm sorry. Some of the very hardest questions on the test are 22, 23, 24, 25, 26. I could show you mountains of questions in the 22 to 26 range that are the hardest questions ever on the LSAT. So you're making too much out of limited data here and you are allowing yourself to miss easy questions when you think that skipping and guessing is a thing. Skipping and guessing is not a thing. No one gets to 170 by skipping and guessing. The only way to get to a really great LSAT score is to just get them right and you got to take them one at a time and you just have to figure them out. Sorry, dude. Um, must be true questions seem to be my greatest weakness. Whoa, that's weird. There's no reason for must be true questions to be your weakness. Must be true questions are like totally obvious. The correct answer on a must be true question is the one that has to be true based only on the given information. And it's just right there. It's on the page. The reason why the right answer is right is because that's what it fucking says. And the reason why the four wrong answers are wrong is because it ain't say that. When you miss a must be true question, it's because you were picking some speculative shit, misunderstanding what you read. Lawyers don't do that. So I don't know. I just think you've got to take it more seriously. There's no reason to miss them. Must be true questions are easy. It's right there. It says it on the page. You have to decide that it's easy and you just have to decide that you are not going to pick answers that are speculative or that overstate the case. You have to decide that you're going to actually understand what the stimulus says. And you have to decide that you're just only going to pick an answer that is proven by the facts on the page. If you can commit to that, then these must be true questions are going to be super easy this, by the way, is also why you suck at reading comprehension because the reading comprehension questions are almost all must be trues. So you're going to get a lot of bang for your buck if you just figure out how to get better at must be true questions. I mean, you're skipping. What are you doing? Skipping must be true questions right now because you think you're bad at them. Great. So now you're also going to suck at reading comp. That's not a good plan, dude. Slow down. 
focus on accuracy, get the must be true questions right because they're evidence-based. The right answer is right because it says that on the page. Figure those out. Stop missing those. No excuses. Um, do you recommend just bubbling guesses at the five minute mark? Yes, I do. When the proctor says five minutes, I think you should bubble in a straight line of guesses for the remaining questions on the section. All A's, all B's, all C's, all D's, or all E's. Pick your favorite letter. I don't care. Just bubble in a straight line of guesses. That will take you 15 seconds. And then you go back and you answer one more question correctly. Do you think that I should just skip questions as I go or skip them in chunks, i.e. skip 16 to 22 and jump to 23? That would be very, very dumb of you. That would be the worst. I hate that strategy so much. No, I do not endorse that at all. You need to do the questions from front to back, do them in order, figure them out. When you run out of time, you bubble in guesses for the remaining questions. It's simple. No skipping around. The, the last, I'm sorry, but the last five are not easier than the five before that. They're just not. Uh, you are deluding yourself if that's what you think. September will be my third LSAT take, but I am also intent on doing it in November slash December. Well, it's November this year. If I have to, is a fourth LSAT take too much? Will I be viewed negatively? An admission counselor here in San Diego told me that a fourth take is doing too much and doesn't reflect my true abilities. This admission counselor doesn't know shit. Um, what are your thoughts? Yeah. Happy to give you my thoughts. Um, Law schools only care about your highest score. We've said this on almost every episode of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Law schools only care about your highest score. We talked about it on the very last episode. They would be stupid to do anything other than care about your highest score because it affects their ABA accreditation and it also affects their law school rankings and it also affects the data that they publish on their ABA 509 reports. And they would be idiots to do anything other than consider just your highest score. So it's a new thing. We're in a brave new world now where there is no more um, three times in two years restriction, which there used to be for forever. For my whole career, there was the LSAC would only let you take the test three times in any two year period. They, they lifted that restriction recently. And so now we see students who are taking it comfortably taking it a third time or a fourth time or a fifth time. And, you know, here's the deal. You don't just randomly take the test and hope you're going to get a better score. You do do a lot of practice tests timed. You do have a very uh, sensible, realistic assessment of where you're at because your practice test scores are not going to lie. And then you take the official test and you expect to get something that is in line with your practice tests. It's simple. So if you score lower than what your ability is, as demonstrated by your practice tests, then you take it again. And I don't care if it's your fourth time or your fifth time. If you know you can do better based on your practice test scores, then you take it again. And yeah, just take it again. If you know you can do better again, based on your practice test scores, not based on some fantasy about like, Oh, I think I can score 170. Yeah. Okay. Show it to me on a practice test. And if you can do it on a practice test, then absolutely you can do it on the real thing. It just might take you a couple tries, but you should keep retaking the LSAT until you achieve, um, you know, your actual ability. Uh, 
I am working full-time on active duty with field expeditions. I literally took the LSAT after getting off the desert on my second take. I wonder if that fact colors their perception of my performance at all. This time I took the whole goddamn week off so I can concentrate. Uh, Hey, getting right out of uh, the desert sounds tough. Um, I don't know that you need to take a whole week off to concentrate, though, for your test. I think you might be overblowing the um, intensity of the actual day of the test. It's a half a day, dude, and you're sitting in like an air-conditioned room, and I don't think it needs to be this high-drama situation if you don't make it out to be. I don't know what you mean by... I wonder if this will color their perception of my performance. You're, you're looking, you're thinking about it way too deeply. They don't know that you took the test right after you got out of the desert. They don't know that. I mean, they do know that you are active duty and that's great. And you can write about that in your personal statement. That's great. But they don't care about all that shit unless you show them an LSAT score that's in line with the other LSAT scores at the people at that school. Um, you just you just got to achieve your your true talent here by getting a better score. Any increase from 155 is acceptable. A 160 would make me happy. 165 is my reach goal. Uh, okay, great. Get the highest score you possibly can, but your route to improvement is to slow down and focus more on accuracy and stop thinking about your 165 reach goal. Um Start thinking about the 156 that you're going to get today and the 157 that you're going to get tomorrow. And you got to just baby step this. Um, Love the podcast. Nathan, I love your book. Again, please review me on Amazon. Ben, thanks for the strategy prep resources as well. Y'all rock. Thanks again for everything. Joe. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for writing in. Next uh, email. Hey guys, thank you so much for the podcast. Feel free to use my first name and as much of this email as you deem necessary if you read it on the show. A snapshot of my profile. I graduated from a community college in Boston with an associate's degree in liberal arts, followed by a bachelor's degree from the University of Colorado in geography. The overall GPA is 3.85, with my grades being much higher while at the University of Colorado, where my GPA was a 3.98. Damn. I also spent a year with AmeriCorps NCCC. I don't know what that is. Performing different types of community service. I am taking the June and July LSAT and possibly September, depending on how the first two go. I am currently averaging around a 160 and improving. I've used several of y'all's methods, such as a timed section every day for the last couple of months, and it has helped immensely. Great. I was wondering if the fact that I went to community college will have any effect on how schools will view my high GPA. No. Although it improved once I went to a four-year college, I did go to a satellite campus in Denver rather than the main campus in Boulder. Given this situation and assuming an LSAT score around 160 to 165, where do you think I stand in getting a substantial scholarship from a decent university? Um, I'm not going to stats debate about your uh, chances of getting scholarships. You can stats debate all you want uh, till you're completely spent by just Googling LSAT GPA calculator and by Googling ABA 509 
uh, insert school name here. You can find all sorts of public data. You can uh, play around with your fantasy LSAT score and your actual GPA. They don't care that you went to a community college. Um, the LSAC is going to adjust your GPA once you have all your transcripts uploaded. I'm not going to go too much into that process because I don't care. You have to submit all of the transcripts to the LSAC and they will tell you what your LSAC adjusted GPA is and there's really nothing you can do about it. Um, so do that and that'll give you your actual LSAC GPA. And then, you know, you can play around with various LSAT scores, but the important thing is you just have to get the best LSAT score you can. They, it's very simple. You know, you get yourself into the conversation with your numbers. It's not like it's only about the numbers, but the conversation starts with your numbers. So if you get the right LSAT score combined with your very strong grades, the fact that you went to a community college for two years isn't going to have anything to do with anything. I mean, you graduated from the school you graduated from and the fact that you spent two years at a community college doesn't have any bearing on that. Um, okay. Also, I was wondering what you guys thought about writing an LGBT diversity statement. I've never really experienced intense discrimination or mistreatment for being a gay man, but that certainly doesn't mean that being gay didn't make my life harder. I don't want to appear as if I'm complaining or attempting to exaggerate my experiences just to get a leg up on the competition. Also, I plan on applying to several schools with religious affiliations, if that matters. Thanks again for all you do. I really hope I didn't make any grammatical errors. Doug. Ah, pretty clean, Doug. I did, I, a couple typos, but I'm going to let you go today because Ben's not here to laugh about it with me. Um, man, I got to say, that's pretty awesome that you have never experienced intense discrimination or mistreatment for being a gay man. You know, we live in some pretty weird times these days, and it's easy to think about how shitty everything is in the world. But I got to say, you know, I was in high school in the 90s. I graduated from high school in 1994. And in my shitty small town in the Central Valley in 1994, if you were gay, you got your ass kicked. Uh, I didn't do any of the ass kicking, but I saw my friends do the ass kicking or not my friends. I saw the assholes on the football team do some ass kicking of some gay kids in our school who of course couldn't even come out. It's like they're obviously gay, but they can't come out. And so instead they just get their ass kicked, even though they're not even out. And it, it just, it's so fucked up. And the fact that our culture has completely changed our treatment of homosexuals is, can we all just take a moment and, and appreciate how great that is? Now, and not to say that the battle is over and not to say that there aren't other things that we can't work on, but you know, Hey, let's, uh, let's take a little bit of uh, positivity uh, here and just be grateful for the fact that Doug is now emailing me saying he's a gay man who didn't get his ass kicked. That's fuck. Thank God. Thank God. We're, we are making some forward progress y'all. So thank you all of you, each of you, thank you for the work that you are out there doing to make the world a better place. Should Doug write an LGBT diversity statement? <sighs> sure. Why not? I mean, you know, 
Yes, of course. Why not? They, they're asking how you are going to bring diversity to the law school uh, legal education environment or the practice of law. And it's not like being gay is like ultra rare in law school, but being out and gay is a thing that is not like really that <laughs> that hasn't been happening for that long. And the fact that you're, that you're out there saying it. Yeah, of course it's the diver- people don't understand the diversity statement is not whining. The diversity statement is proudly saying, here's how I am going to bring something different to the classroom. And even though, you know, it's cool to be gay these days, um, there, there are still going to be far more just straight white folks in your class at law school than anybody else. And so you saying I'm a, you know, out gay man and here's what, here's how that impacted my experience. And here's what I think I'm going to bring to the classroom. Um, I think that's wonderful. So no, it is not whining. You don't have to exaggerate you know, if, if you didn't really face discrimination, that's fine. It's not about discrimination. It's about, here's the different perspective that I'm going to bring to the classroom. So, uh, absolutely. Um, go ahead and write that diversity statement. Keep it short. You know, it can be a paragraph. It doesn't have to be, it's not a second personal statement. Nobody wants a three page diversity statement. I mean, unless you've really got something special, different about diversity that you want to talk about. But if that's the case, I don't know why you didn't put it in your personal statement to begin with. Write your personal statement about what you're going to write your personal statement about and write a one paragraph diversity statement about being uh, an out gay man, wherever you were when you were doing that somewhere in Colorado. That's awesome. Thanks, Doug. Next one. Hey, guys, I'd appreciate if you didn't use my name on the podcast. You can call me don't go or some other inventive abbreviation if you so choose. Okay, don't go. Got it. I'm emailing because I think it may benefit some listeners to learn about, quote, legal apprenticeship programs. They go by different names in different states, but seven states in the U.S. have some sort of program in which one can take the state bar exam without first attending law school. In California, where I'm based, the program is called the Law Office Study Program, and students are required to study in a law office or judges' chambers for four years. They're required to study a set curriculum and take occasional exams administered by the attorney or judge under whom they study. And there's a link here to a Times article. Okay. Um, We'll put both of those. uh, We'll put some links in the show notes here. Uh, Okay. I know it may run contrary to your business interests to inform people about a route to becoming a lawyer that doesn't involve the LSAT. But I think it may actually be a good idea to take the LSAT anyway. Oh, okay. I I don't really care that much about my business interests. I try to talk people out of going to law school all the time, so I'm happy shooting myself in the foot. But now you think, don't go thinks, it may actually be a good idea to take the LSAT anyway. Okay, why? Well, I think so, because as the time notes, bar pass... Times notes, bar passage rates for law office students are so dismal. Last year, only 17 passed or 28% compared with 73% for students who attended schools approved by the ABA. For those who are considering a legal apprenticeship program, the LSAT may 
be a good litmus test to compare oneself against the competition and gauge whether four years of invested time is worth the risk of not passing the bar and not being able to practice law. Yeah, I, I, I do agree with that. Anyway, thanks for all you do. I love the podcast. I have taken a private lesson with strategy prep recently, which provided some valuable insight and seems to helped me over a plateau, though it's still too early to tell for sure. Best don't go. Um, thanks. Don't go. Yeah. We'll post these links to this legal apprenticeship program. I mean, the truth is it's very, very rare. Almost nobody goes this route. I don't know why nobody goes this route, but there, there are very few people who go this route. And yeah, the fact that they are so abysmally passing the bar at 28%, I don't know where that is. Um, nationally, I guess 28% of these people, but that's only 17 total people who made it through this route. Okay. So this is a big route. You can go this way. Uh, you don't have to pay for law school, which is awesome. I mean, I'm all about don't pay for law school. So if you can actually go this route, that's great. But yeah, let's think about this. I mean, you're going to do four years worth of busting your ass working at a law firm and simultaneously studying in one of these apprenticeship programs. And then four years from now that bar exam is looming. And if only 28% of these people who do this are actually passing the bar, that tells you something. I don't think it tells you anything about the quality of the education. I don't think it's about that. I think it tells you something about the caliber (laughs) caliber. Boy, that's a pretty heavy term, isn't it? I don't know. I don't know how to say it any other way though. It just tells you about the abilities, the reading and writing and work ethic maybe of the people who go this route. The bars, the bar exam is hard y'all. I'm in, I'm in LA. I mean, and I'm in California in California. (laughs) The bar exam is really hard and you need to know what you're getting yourself into. And it's, it's just, it's nasty. And if you're like, well, the LSAT's too difficult. I can't get into a decent law school. Uh, okay. Well then that's the whole point. That's why the ABA requires an LSAT or requires some admissions test. They're trying to protect you from getting ripped off and wasting your time. If you can't achieve, you know, a 150 bare minimum 150 on the LSAT, you're going to have a bitch of a time on the bar exam. So I, I think don't go is making a reasonable point here, which is even if you do do this legal apprenticeship program, maybe before you start that, you should take the LSAT just to see if you're even close. Um, I don't know. I'm not trying to sell classes by saying that. I'm just saying the, the, the LSAT is an, an imperfect, but pretty good predictor of your success in law school and your success on the bar exam. Um, that's the purpose of the test. So you should take it seriously and you should do the best you can. And if you end up, you know, topping out like your best ever LSAT score is 148. Uh, I'm not saying it's impossible for you to be a successful lawyer, but I, I just think it's, unlikely. Okay. I am 
going to leave it there. Sorry, this episode's a little bit shorter, but I'm sure you are sick of listening to me. That was episode 145 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school.